John 13. Stand with me if you would. Over the course of the next few weeks, we want to preach a few messages um, as we prepare our hearts for Easter, and that's just around the corner. And uh, so on Sunday nights, we'll be focusing on some key moments in the final days of Jesus Christ uh, before He gave His life uh, for our sin. And aren't you glad He did that? And so we'll be looking at just some very practical, um, practical things here over the next few nights that we share together on Sunday evenings. We're going to be in our reading. We're just going to read the first five verses tonight, and then we'll read a few more as the sermon progresses. So verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own, which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, and that He was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper. He laid aside His garments and took a towel and girded Himself. And that, after that He poureth water into a basin. And He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith He was girded. Let's pray tonight. Father, thank You for a good day together. Lord, thank You for the music tonight. Lord, thank You for Your presence here. Lord, for the the spirit you've given to this church family, Lord, for the relationships that we have. Um, and Father, just for a good day, Lord, thank you for dying for our sins and going through what you did for us. And I pray as we look at these thoughts over the next few weeks that you'd help us to implement things that were important to you and the example that you set for us, that we'd follow in them or express our gratitude and appreciation to you in, in these ways. So help us, I pray, to find application tonight and help for the week that lies ahead in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Four Gospels are short books considering all that they hold within their pages. And then we read all that we know about Jesus Christ. Of course, we learn about His birth. We learn about His life, His teachings, His acts, His miracles. Ultimately, His death, His resurrection, and His final instruction He imparted to each of us. As we read about the final week of Christ, and I would encourage you to do that as, as the, the weeks approach toward Easter, um, we're swept away by perhaps the sheer drama of it. Beginning, John commits the most about Jesus' final days uh, to his writings, and beginning in about chapter 11, he instructs us about the plan that was hatched to kill Jesus. And as Jesus himself began to talk about his own death, we can almost hear a bass drum beating dolefully in the background. And it grows louder and louder as the story progresses. And maybe if Hollywood was to produce something like this, that's what they would do. At Jesus' death, there would be no miracles. There would be no supernatural rescue attempts. This is tragedy beyond what Sophocles or Shakespeare could write. Here we have the most sophisticated religious system of its time. And they were allied with the most powerful political and military empire. And together they unite against a solitary man the singular figure, the only perfect man who ever lived. He is mocked by those powers. He's abandoned by his friends and his family, and yet there's this ironic sense that we gain that he himself, as he is in part of it, is overseeing the entire process and is in complete control of it. The Bible says that he set his face toward Jerusalem knowing full well what waited for him there. The shame and the suffering of the cross had been his goal all along, and it was in his sights. And now as his betrayal, his trial, and his death nears, 
he calls the shots. And others may have thought that they were in control, that they were taking charge of the situation, but he was in control. And he had it under his power. The last week of Jesus could be looked at from many angles. The fulfillment of prophecy, life-changing theology, personal drama, the fulfillment of God's plan. But as I mentioned a moment ago, I want us to look through some basic instructions that should guide our hearts and our behaviors. His pending death and suffering highlight the importance of each of these ideas, and they add emphasis to things that he held and I believe continues to hold dear. And so beginning here in John chapter 13, John 11, we read a few chapters about the final days as it, as it begins to get closer. But when we get to John chapter 13, this isn't just the final days. This is the final night before he was to pay the price for our sin and die on a cross. And what we have recorded for us is an intimate memoir of Jesus' long and anguished night. And it began with the Passover. Jesus and his disciples had participated in the Passover their entire lives. But this was the last one. And it was laden with special symbolism and instruction. The Passover, we're instructed from the Old Testament, was the first Jewish feast of the year and was the oldest of their holy days. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5 says, In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. It was something that was instituted thousands of years before this night. It was to remember when God had delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so we read about this in Exodus. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. He says, I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And so as they did, that night they were to take a sacrifice, sacrificial lamb that was spotless. They were to sacrifice it. They were to take its blood. They were to put it on the post of the door at their homes. During the Passover each year, the nation of Israel commemorated this deliverance that God had given to them. And so four days prior to the Passover, they were to go out and they were to select a spotless lamb. And they were to take that lamb and they were to set it aside from the rest of the herd. They were to care for it, take care of it until it would be slain. And so Jesus and his disciples, as we enter into this story tonight, would have done just that. We are reading about them on Thursday. And they would have done this on, on Monday of that week, selecting a lamb, laying it aside. Historical records from Jesus' time indicate that as many as a quarter million lambs were slain during a typical Passover season. Hundreds of priests would have been required to carry out this task. All the lambs had to be slain within a two-hour period of time, just before twilight. That means, and here's the math on it, there would have been at least 600 priests killing a lamb on average every four minutes. Temple Mount, Elizabeth and I stood there just uh, in December of this past year, would have been densely crowded with as many as 500,000 people moving through that area in a two-hour span of time. Hey, think about that. That's a lot of people. Two men were allowed to be present per lamb, so it would have been a minimum of that. 
But the Jews of Jesus' day had a way of reckoning the calendar that helped alleviate some of that problem. And I want you to hang with me for just a moment because I'm driving to a point. The Pharisees, as well as the Jews from Galilee and the northern districts of Israel, counted their days from sunrise to sunrise. That's how they counted their, their days. But the Sadducees and the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding districts that were around Jerusalem, they calculated days from sundown to sundown. So that meant the Passover for a Galilean fell on Thursday, and for an inhabitant in Jerusalem, it fell on Friday, and for Jesus, the Passover would have fallen on Thursday. So that meant half of the lambs would be killed Thursday in that two-hour time span, and half of the lambs on Friday. And this is what explains the chronology of why Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal on Thursday evening in the upper room. It also explains why the Jewish leaders and residents of Jerusalem had not yet celebrated the Passover on the following day when Jesus was taken by trial to the Praetorium Guard. It also explains why Jesus' trial and crucifixion took place on the day of preparation for the Passover, even though he and his disciples had already partaken of the Passover. And so it's important to understand the time frame here. On Thursday, Jesus participated in the last Passover. He ate the lamb. But on Friday, he was the lamb, the lamb of God. And his blood didn't just take away sins for that moment. It took away sins for all eternity and did away with the need for the Passover. The blood from those sacrifices shed each year and on these two nights would have been tremendous. Historians say that blood was permitted to flow off the steep eastern slope of the Temple Mount and into the Kidron Valley, where it would have turned the brook there a bright crimson red for a period of several days. And those of you that have been to Israel know this, and those of you that are going will discover this. The Kidron Valley, everything just kind of centers around it. And so here the blood would have flowed, and it flows down into the Kidron Valley, and it, and it flows down. It would have turned the brook there a bright crimson red for a long period of time. It was an awful reminder for the price of sin. Of course, the blood of those animals could not actually atone for sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. The lambs only symbolized a more perfect sacrifice that God would provide to take away sins. And that's why the hymn writer wrote, What can wash away my sin? And the answer is nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing. Absolutely nothing but the precious blood of Jesus. It's why John the Baptist looked beyond those animal sacrifices. And when he saw Jesus, he pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He, was, he, he understood in that moment, there's the sacrifice. There's the blood that we need. And one day he will shed his blood for our sin. And the full meaning of that prophecy that John gave was about to be unveiled. Again, this wasn't just any Passover. This was the last one. It's evident from Matthew's account of this story tonight that Jesus had prearranged many of the details for the evening himself. There was a space that needed to be reserved and paid for. The room needed to be set up and it needed to be arranged. 
Some things never change. The lamb needed to be slaughtered at the temple, and then it had to be brought back for roasting. There were other elements that needed to be prepared, things like unleavened bread and wine, dishes of bitter herbs and other things. Jesus had one evening left with his disciples. This was it. He was about to die. The religious system was about to be turned upside down. There was so much culminating in history at this moment. And yet, eating the Passover meal with his disciples was a really big deal to him. Luke records, he said unto them with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is my last meal. This is the last food to go through my lips. I'm about to die. I'm about to pay the price for your sin and for all of mankind. And I want this meal to be with you. And so it would have been about 6 p.m. in the evening. We don't know if they themselves, the disciples themselves and Jesus had prepared the Passover or if there were other people, perhaps some of the women who traveled with Jesus who helped to prepare the meal. Luke does record that the room that they met in was large, but that would be a relative term historically. By our standards today, the room was probably more smallish and filled with the noises of animated conversation and meal preparation. The meal progresses and the disciples are talking with each other. And as with most groups of people, there's probably multiple conversations going on at once. Imagine for a moment, if you would, maybe your Sunday school environment and, and, and even this morning. They're discussing many of the things they had heard and seen in recent days. We have to remember that historians say more than likely these were really young men. So under the age of 30... Most historians say many of them were probably under the age of 25, maybe even a few of them in their late teens. Jesus is probably unusually sober. They know something is going on. They could all sense it. But what exactly they didn't know. He had said it to them plainly, but understanding exactly what Jesus meant escaped them. They had no idea how in just a few short hours their lives would so dramatically change. Luke records at the conclusion of the meal... Jesus predicted that one of the disciples would betray him. And they absorbed that fact. And so a debate breaks out amongst them, not necessarily thinking that it was someone there, about who's going to betray him. And so as they're arguing about who's going to betray him, the conversation begins to turn from who would betray him to who was the most loyal to them, to him. And who was actually the best Christian among them? And who was making the greatest contribution? Who was closest to Jesus? Who was the greatest in the kingdom of God? Luke twenty two twenty four gives us this detail. And there was a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Okay, let me just add a little commentary here before we continue. To their credit, before I pick on them a little bit, all right? These men at least knew what mattered in life. It wasn't accumulating possessions that attracted them to following Jesus. Um, With Jesus, they knew that they could make a bigger contribution in this world and in the one to come. But instead of listening to the words of Jesus and appreciating the moment, they enter into strife with each other. 
Jesus is about to die. He's plainly told them that. He said, someone's going to betray me. And these men, who he had poured his life into and entrusted with so much, are quibbling like schoolboys over things that are irrelevant. This wasn't the kind of relationship that Jesus wanted these men to have. He wanted the relationship that these men had to be special. He wanted them to have a camaraderie and and a synergy and a strength and a support base. He wanted them to encourage each other, to sacrifice for one another. He wanted them to love each other desperately and to defer to one another. He didn't want them fragmenting. He didn't want them fracturing their relationships through infighting. He certainly didn't want them arguing about who was and would be the greatest amongst them. And so perhaps with a sigh, Jesus stands and lays aside his outer garment. The Bible instructs us that he takes a towel and he takes a basin of water and he bends over and he begins to wash the grime of Jerusalem from the feet of his disciples. Remember, this is an old world. And foot washing was necessary because of the type of shoes that they wore, because of the mud, the dust, the filth, the feces that was on the road, which pedestrians would have often encountered. In those days, as many of you might know already, foot washing was so degrading that a master could not require a Jewish slave even to do it. In the Roman world, women were degraded, and often it was only women slaves who performed this task. In the Jewish culture, it would have often been voluntary, but it would have been the students of the rabbis who would have washed their master's feet, symbolizing their relationship with them. And so here Jesus is. And as his disciples are arguing about who's better, who's more spiritual, who's the greatest, who's the big shot, Jesus gets down in front of his followers and does what only someone on the lowest social pecking order would do. It was both a subtle rebuke to the disciples, but it was also a pattern for the kind of humility and service that he wanted each of them to exercise. And so Jesus finishes this task. He goes around this table, and the story would say it probably would have been about 18 inches high. It wouldn't have been like a dining table the way we'd think of, but about 18 inches high. The men are all leaning, uh, you know, on some type of pillow or something, and so they're leaned out, and Jesus comes behind them, and he washes all their feet. He gets back to the front of the table, I assume, and he says these words, and I want you to continue reading in verse 12 with me. He says, so after he had washed their feet, he taken his garments, was set down again, he said unto them, it's a question. Know ye what I have done to you. Pause. Do you guys know what I did? This wasn't just about clean feet. Now comes the lesson. Verse 13. Ye call me master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. Jesus wasn't putting himself down here. This wasn't wasn't about him lowering himself so much as it was about him showing an example to them and lifting them up. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example. It's an illustration, guys. I'm proving a point. You should do as I have done to you. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, 
Neither is he that sent greater than he that sent him. And then he says this, if you know these things, if you can process this, if you'll accept this truth, and if you'll work to follow my example, well then, happy are ye. The idea there is blessed if ye do them. There's a few points I want to make tonight from this text and this story. Jesus last night on earth, his final meal. The pursuit of personal greatness is a threat to things that are enduring and meaningful. When we pursue personal greatness, we threaten all that is good around us. Things that are enduring and things that are meaningful. See, the focus of what they were personally going to get for serving God overshadowed their personal contribution to the kingdom of God. They were so focused on God, what am I going to get for serving you? What's my position? What's my standing before you? What's my reward? And the Lord says, guys, you're missing the point. If you're so invested in personal greatness, and then that's your pursuit, then you threaten what I'm trying to build. That's not what I have for you, and it's not what I want for you. They weren't focused on the change that they could affect in the lives of others, but on what position they would occupy. See, he makes this point. True greatness is not had in direct pursuit. Eternal greatness happens directly opposite of how earthly and temporal greatness happens. We see greatness all the time in our world from an earthly perspective. And we understand that and, and, and we mimic it. And Jesus said, that's not how it works for me. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works in eternity. It works in, re in reverse. See, your ambition, your drive, your stick to your, your hard, hard, your hard charging might build something. It might create something. But not anything that lasts. And Jesus wanted something that would last. There was a book that Pastor Darrell had our staff guys read. And this was years ago, early on in my tenure here at Eastland. It's really shaped some of our thinking and it was a help at the time. It continues to be. This story is, is obviously dated now. This book would have been about, written about 20 years ago, and the illustration is actually from 1981, but it proves a point. And then I want you to listen to this. When David Maxwell became CEO of Fannie Mae in 1981, the company was losing a million dollars every single business day. That's a lot of money now. It's a lot of money then, over 40 years ago. Over the next nine years, Maxwell transformed Fannie Mae into a high-performance culture that rivaled the best Wall Street firms, earning $4 million every business day, beating the general stock market 3.8 to 1. Maxwell retired while still at the top of his game, feeling that the company would be ill-served if he stayed on too long, and he turned the company over to an equally capable successor, Jim Johnson. So shortly thereafter, Maxwell's retirement package, which had grown to be worth $20 million based on Fannie Mae's spectacular performance, became a point of controversy in Congress. Fannie Mae operated under a government charter. Maxwell responded by writing a letter to his successor in which he expressed concern that the controversy would trigger an adverse reaction in Washington that could jeopardize the future of the company. He then instructed Johnson not to pay him the remaining balance, $5.5 million, 
and asked that the entire amount be contributed to Fannie Mae Foundation for low-income housing. David Maxwell, like Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, other examples he, he gives in the book, exemplified a key trait of what he calls level five leadership. Ambition first and foremost for the company and concern for its success, rather than for one's own riches and personal renown. He says level five leaders want to see the company even more successful in the next generation. Comfortable with the idea that most people won't even know that the roots of that success trace back to their efforts. As one level five leader said, I want to look out from my porch at one of the great companies in the world someday and be able to say, I used to work there. Now, now I want you to pay careful attention to this concluding paragraph of this section of the book. He says, in contrast, the comparison leaders concerned more with their own reputation for personal greatness. Okay, think upper room. Think 12 disciples. Often fail to set the company up for success in the next generation. Concerned with personal greatness, sure you can build something, but it doesn't live past you. And he says, after all, what better testament to your own personal greatness than that the place falls apart after you leave. And Jesus looks at these men and says this, I'm building something here that's special. And I don't want it to fall apart after I'm gone. And if you pursue personal greatness, that is exactly what's going to happen. This place is going to fall apart when I'm gone. See, if we're going to make a difference for the Lord, we're going to have to shelve our egos. We're going to have to sometimes shelve what drives us. We need to be obsessed with not with our position, not with our personal greatness, not what position we occupy, but with results. And too often we keep score. We tabulate who's making the greatest sacrifice. And you don't, you don't see all the, all the things that I do here. And we justify our attitude. And our ego too often gets in the way of building anything enduring or meaningful. And we need to be more concerned about the mission than our position. See, personal, personal greatness and for the pursuit thereof it is a threat to things that are meaningful and enduring. And it is when our hearts and our thoughts are directed towards the needs of others that true greatness is found. And that's what Jesus is instructing. And so he demonstrates this himself. Thoughtfulness towards others and not just a preoccupation with self. If anyone had a right to be occupied with self, it would have been Jesus. Like he, 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 is, he is about to go to the cross. He is about to suffer incredible torment physically. He is about to have God the Father turn his back on him. He is about to take all of the gross, heinous, disgusting sins that you and I have committed in this room and in this world and in the history of the world and place it on his back. If anyone had a right to keep score with these 12 self-obsessed, greatness-driven men, it would have been Jesus. It's not where his mind went. His mind went to them. It went to teaching them and instructing them and, and guiding their hearts and demonstrating thoughtfulness towards him. When disciples entered the room, the towel and basin of water were right there 
for their feet to be washed. It was within arm's reach. But there was no slave or servant to perform the task when they entered. So instead of humbling themselves to perform such a demeaning task for one another, the disciples left their feet unwashed. Just leave the grime. Leave the filth. Because I don't want to wash your feet. It's disgust. They're disgusting. And they all walked by it. They left the towel and the basin of water untouched. They didn't even think to think about blessing or serving one another. Not one of them had even offered to wash Jesus' feet. Jesus was very self-aware. He was thinking about himself. There was a lot facing him. But in the midst of personal angst and suffering, he found room in his mind and heart to think about the things of others. When we walk into a room, when you walk into a room, when you walk into this room, what do you see? What do you think about? Giving? Contributing? I don't want to take time to talk to that person. I've had a hard day. I'm tired tonight. Got a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Well, so did Jesus. <laughs> had a lot going on in that moment. I want to point something out before I come back to that thought. Because I'm going to go full circle here. This passage doesn't just emphasize giving. It also emphasizes receiving. There are some people in this room, their number is smaller, but they do give a lot. They give and they give and they give. Some people, like Peter, need to make room for allowing others to contribute by allowing them to serve. See, receiving service is just as important as giving service. So John chapter 13, verse 8, Peter says to Jesus, look there with me. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus gets to a few of the guys. He gets to Peter. Peter says, nope, not me. Here's the servant. Here's the guy who thinks he's closest. Here's the guy who's giving the most. Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. This is symbolic of sin and salvation. Some Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So he's saying, well, you're going to wash me, just wash me. And Jesus says, he that's washed needs not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you're clean. He says, but not all. But there's a point here that's going on in the background. Peter says, well, no, not my feet, Lord. That's not for you to do uh, to me. I'm the servant. And good for Peter. He rejected his service because he didn't feel worthy. But Jesus, in essence, says to Peter, you are worthy, and you need to receive this act of service. If he wasn't worthy, Jesus wouldn't have done it. And Peter needed to see himself as such. People who always give and they never receive often end up with frustrated and bitter spirits and do not have power to endure because they give and they give and they give and they never pause to allow others to serve them. Sometimes we fear that if we receive, then we are going to have to give 
I feel obligated and indebted. First, let me say this to you. You cannot not help but receive. In this very moment, you are receiving a lot of sacrifice and toil and love by other people. Someone who prepared the message and prayed over it. Someone who's watching the children and keeping the matter. Someone who cleaned this building, who turned on these lights, who paid these bills. You can't help but not receive in this moment. Like we all are receiving constantly. And second, it's selfish to think this way. Service from another will touch and warm your heart. So we need to be both recipients and givers. And you're going to have a hard time serving others if you yourself do not allow others to serve you. See, learning to receive is about vulnerability. Our needs and our hearts need to be filled. Every single one of us. If we just give and we give and we give and we never receive back, when God instructs others to give to us too, then we're just going to run out and we have nothing in the tank. We're supposed to be conduits, service running in us, service running through us. And recognizing that you have needs that God made you to have, God also uses others to fill. And so here Jesus is the one who served. And he wasn't bashful about asking people to serve him too. There is a beauty in the reciprocity of serving. And if you don't receive service in time, you may resent being served yourself. There are to be on and on ramps and exit ramps in the Christian life. We need to be people who give, and we need to be people who receive. Okay, let me come back to the final thought, and we'll wrap it up. Jesus was eating his last meal on the last night of his life. Washing the feet of 12 men was at the top of his priority list. Now think about that. This was a big deal to him. Are we supposed to take this example literally? I don't think so. Some do. There are some people who literally have foot washing ceremonies. I have seen preachers illustrate this before. I'm not going to do that for you tonight. Saw, never mind. <clears throat> I saw one guy take a dude's shoes and socks off on the platform and start massaging his feet. I was like, nope, not doing that. We're out, you know. Not going to do that tonight. I think what Jesus was doing here was expressing his wish list for how his disciples would interact with each other. He's saying, look, this is the kind of relationship I want you to have. So he did it himself as an example for them. 2,000 years have passed, and that example has not gotten any easier. And we need to work at not obsessing with image and position, personal or denominational greatness. I want to emphasize something that's a little easy to miss. This was an insider meeting. Jesus didn't invite others in and wash their feet. He didn't open the doors to whoever and, and whatever and just say, okay, everybody line up, I'm going to start washing feet. This was people close to him. He didn't wash the feet of the world. He didn't invite everyone in. He washed his disciples' feet. And there's a type of service that is intimate and it's personal and it's just for our church family. We can love other people and we should. 
we should love them, but there is special emphasis that God's Word gives to those in the household of faith. There is special emphasis given to each individual, autonomous, local New Testament church family. And this type of service, this type of spirit, this type of heart should define this church family. It is how we are to view each other. It is how we are to interact with one another. Not arguing over position. Not figuring out who's the greatest among us. But walking in and seeing needs. And it may not be foot washing. My feet are clean. Don't touch my feet. But there are needs that I have that my family, my children have. And there are needs you have. And the Lord is saying this, this is our church family. Pay special attention to each other. There's supposed to be an intimate, unique, personal relationship with each other that strengthens us, that creates synergy. It's a special bond that we are a part of. And you have a responsibility here to take care of the people in this church. This is your church. This is your church family. We need to treat each other carefully. We need to treat each other with great love, with great deference, with sacrificial service toward one another. Pastor, I was in his office this morning, and he started telling me what he was preaching on this morning. And I'm looking at him like, well, this is going to be an echo chamber today, you know. And it's okay. The Lord knows all that. It's, it's, a, it's the same message stated in a different way. We live in a generation that has taken shopping to a next level and it's entered into the church. If you're a member of this church, then be one. Love each other. Don't walk by the water basin and the towel. Don't wait for the master to wash your feet. We have a responsibility to take this example and say, I've got work to do. I've got people to love. I've got investments to make right here in my church. Not the whole world. This was the 12 disciples. This was their, their closed group, and this is ours. Let's protect it. Let's promote it. Let's play our role that Christ would have us play right here.